of September 13, 2023 at this time. Great, thank you. Um, Madam Secretary, do you wanna call the roll? Yes, Commissioner O'Connor. Present. Commissioner Thomas. Present. President Helfon. Present. Commissioner Driscoll. Present. Um, Commissioner Bridges is running late and Commissioner Safai and Gandhi will not be in attendance today. Thanks. Would you call the first item, please? Item number two, communications. <clears throat> we welcome the public's participation during public comment periods. There will be an opportunity for general public comment at this meeting after closed session. We have no closed session today. There will be an opportunity to comment on each discussion or action item on the agenda. Each comment is limited to two minutes. Public comment will be taken both in person and remotely by call-in. For each item, the board will take public comment first from people attending the meeting in person and then from people attending the meeting remotely. Comments or opportunities to speak during the public comment period are available via phone by calling 415-655-0001, access code 2662089, 1628, then pound and pound again. When connected, you will hear the meeting discussions, but you will be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up, press star three to be added to the speaker line. Best practices are to call from a quiet location, speak clearly and slowly, and turn down your TV or radio. Please note that the city policies, along with federal, state, and local law, prohibit discriminatory or harassing conduct against city employees and others during public meetings and will not be tolerated. Moreover, public comment is permitted only on matters within the jurisdiction of this meeting body. We thank you for joining us. Thank you, no, no public comment is required on this item. Can you call the next item, please? Item number three, general public comment. A reminder that public comment is limited to two minutes. Um, do you want to uh, just put a parenthetical note about the translating? I'm sorry, couldn't hear you. Sure, to um, add to what um, was said, we provide two minutes for public comment. When translation is needed, we will provide four minutes. Okay, that's the only thing. Okay, we have, um, you want to call, actually call the item for public comment? Uh, do we have any in-person public comment? Go ahead and step up to the podium. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Laura Perez, and I'm an organizer with Unite Here Local 11. We've returned to SFRs today because hotel workers have now been walking out on rolling waves of strikes for over two months in Southern California and picketing Arizona hotels to fight for fair contracts. Over 40 conventions and groups have moved events from striking hotels. This includes CalPERS, which canceled its Pathways for Women conference scheduled for August 21 through 22nd at the Anaheim Hilton. Since Local 11 members voted 96% to authorize a strike in June, the strikes have been covered in 1,725 separate TV, radio, and online news clips. One article alone in Yahoo Lifestyle covering John Tesser's departure from the Ambridge-operated Laguna Cliffs Hotel had an estimated audience of 258 million viewers. Today, we'll hear from workers from the Aloft 
El Segundo Hotel and the Sheraton Phoenix Hotel owned by Blackstone Group. You'll also hear from a local 11 member from the Hilton Resort at the Peaks where workers are currently negotiating a fair contract with Fortress Investment Group, which owns the hotel through an affiliate of Fortress Real Estate Credit Opportunities 3. Workers' protests have generated media attention, causing headline and reputational risks for SFers, which invested $75 million in Fortress Real Estate Credit Opportunities 3. These are stories of courage, of working people going on strike and sacrificing their paychecks because they've been pushed to the brink and can no longer survive and provide for their families. As workers, writers, actors, hotel workers, and more strike in Southern, Southern California, your fiduciary responsibility to act, act becomes more and more evident. Please tell Blackstone and Fortress to resolve the labor disputes and to negotiate labor peace agreements to protect investors like SFers from labor strike. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Fernando Perez, and thank you so much for your time. I work in the Fairfield and A-Lab Hotels in El Segundo as a housekeeping supervisor for over three years. I'm tired to work so hard every day and going home at night and wonder why never is, is enough. The managers put a lot of pressure on us, even like I said, I'm a housekeeping supervisor, so I between the management and also the room attendant. So even if you know how to do our job, they always press and push for more productivity. I can barely get on by on my pay at the A-Lab. We made so much less than the other hotels in downtown LA and in other areas. I have two sons and a mortgage. Uh, my older son, Fernando, he's attending uh, UCLA right now, and Alejandro is going to Dominguez Hills. And uh, for me, it's literally impossible to support him because Fernando is already in the fourth grade and Alejandro is in second. And with the money I do there, it's not uh, enough to help them and pay my mortgage. So I'm fighting because I believe we deserve a raise. It's so expensive to live anywhere in Los Angeles County and another areas around there. I do this back-breaking work and I, des and I deserve to make a living wage. That is all we are asking for, a decent wage to allow me to live, not just survive. So please tell Blackstone to do the right thing and settle the contract. Thank you so much for your time. Hello everyone, I hope you guys have had a good morning. Um, my name is Peyton Dollison and I work at the Sheraton in Phoenix. I was raised by a single mom and I watched her struggle to earn enough money to support the family. She had a variety of jobs in her time. She worked at anywhere from Walmart to Dollar General and then she even did caregiving. I was inspired to pursue a higher education so that I could escape the trap of poverty and low wage jobs. I pushed myself in school to earn the grades which allowed me to get nearly a full ride to ASU. I dreamed of becoming an immigration lawyer to fight for justice for people that the legal system was overlooking. Even with the full ride, which covers the majority of my housing costs, making ends meet is still a challenge. Without the scholarship, I would have had to pay $1,500 a month in rent to live near school. 
four months out of the year when school is out, I pay full rent to sublet to at friends' places, and I pay nearly $1,000 a month. Without my scholarship, I would have been impossible to pursue higher education, even working full time with the reduced rent burdens. It's still a challenge for me to make ends meet as a barista at the Sheraton, only making $17 an hour. Please tell Blackstone to resolve a fair contract for us. As one of the largest asset managers in the world, they should set the standard for many hotels and wages and benefits in Arizona. Mi nombre es María Rosario Rodríguez. He trabajado en el Point Hilton en Phoenix, Arizona, propiedad de Fortress Investment Group, durante los últimos 32 años. Good morning. My name is María Rosario Rodríguez, and I've worked at the Point Hilton Hotel in Phoenix, Arizona, owned by Fortress Investment Group for the last 32 years. Inicialmente comencé a trabajar en el Hilton con la esperanza de ganar más dinero para poder mantener a mis seis hijos en ese momento. El hotel pagaba a cada housekeeper $4.50 por habitación y limpiaba hasta 16 habitaciones en un día para ganar suficiente dinero para sobrevivir. Fue muy difícil, pero cuando uno tiene la necesidad, hace lo que sea necesario para I initially began working at the Hilton with the hope of earning enough money so that I could support myself and my six children. At the time, the hotel paid each housekeeper $4.50 per room, and I'd clean up to 16 suites in a day to earn enough money to get by. It was very hard, but when one has necessity, you do what it takes to survive. Desde el 2001, he trabajado en dos trabajos siempre. Quise poder proporcionar algo mejor para mis hijos y esos dos trabajos aseguraron que siempre pudieran vivir en un vecindario seguro. He estado agradecida de tener ambos trabajos porque me permitieron mantener a mi familia y siempre he disfrutado brindando una gran experiencia a los huéspedes en el Hilton. Sin embargo, el hotel no paga lo suficiente. Estoy agradecida a mi Dios y que mi esposo haya podido usar su porongake para que finalmente pudiéramos pagar la casa, pero ahora no nos queda tanto dinero para jubilarnos. Since 2001, I've worked two jobs and I always wanted to be able to provide something a little better for my kids, and those two jobs ensured I could always live in a safe neighborhood. I've been grateful to have both jobs because they have allowed me to support my family, and I've always enjoyed providing a great guest ex or experience for guests at the Hilton. However, the hotel does not pay enough, and I'm grateful my husband was able to use his 401k so we could finally pay off the house. But now we don't have that much money left to retire. Quiero poder jubilarme y estoy luchando para garantizar que el hotel contribuya con una cantidad justa a nuestro fondo de pensión. La limpieza es un trabajo muy duro y merecemos un salario justo para igualar nuestro esfuerzo 
y mantener al día con el creciente costo de las necesidades como alimentos y electricidad. I want to be able to retire and I'm fighting to ensure the hotel contributes a fair amount into our pension fund. Housekeeping is a very hard job and we deserve a fair wage to match our effort and to keep up with the rising cost of necessities such as food and electricity. Por favor, ayúdenos a hablar a Fortress con resuelva un contrato justo para nosotros. Please help us and tell Fortress to resolve a fair contract for us. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> good morning, commissioners. My name is Ty Hudson, and I'm the research director of Unite Here Local 2 here in San Francisco. Um, as you've heard from the workers uh, today from Los Angeles and Arizona, uh, SFR's exposure to hotel labor disputes now extends to Blackstone and Fortress Investment Group. Following one of the most high-profile child labor scandals affecting a private equity firm in modern history and poor performance by prior Blackstone Capital Partners funds, Blackstone has struggled to raise capital for its flagship fund, Blackstone Capital Partners 9. Blackstone is also fundraising for Blackstone Real Estate Partners Asia 3, Blackstone Real Estate Partners Europe 7, and Blackstone Real Estate Debt Strategies 5. All of these funds could invest in the hospitality industry or others that could be subject to labor disputes or ESG issues. Until Blackstone and Fortress have been able to resolve labor disputes and ensure SFRs that the firms can guarantee labor peace in the hospitality industry, we urge you not to reinvest with either firm. We hope that SFRs will agendize a discussion of how to mitigate risk associated with labor disputes at the upcoming investment committee meeting and look forward to collaborating with staff and trustees. Thank you. Thank you. Do we have any further in-person public comment? See none. Um, callers, if you have not already done so, please press star three to be added to the queue. For those already on hold, please continue to wait until the system indicates that you have been unmuted. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, yes, we have one caller on the line. Thank you. Caller, please state your name. Your two minutes begin when you speak. Good morning, Commissioners. My name is Kevin McPherson. I served 20 years as a police officer in San Francisco until my career was ended when I was crushed in between two vehicles. 29 months ago, I submitted an application for industrial disability retirement. At that time, I was told it could take up to a year to process my application. At the one-year mark, I was told it could take up to two years. As the two-year mark approached, I was told it could take two years plus. I checked on the websites of other counties in the state and discovered that most were able to process an application under a year, with the longest being 15 months. I called CalPERS and was told that it takes only four to six months for them to process an IDR application. Although I was told by your staff that it takes the same amount of time for CalPERS to process an application that's for SFERS. Two months ago, I was told I was in a group of 60 applicants that were ready to go. Since SFERS only does seven hearings a month, if I am number 54 to 60, uh, then it will take a total of three years to process my application. This to me is absurd. Why can other counties and CalPERS process applications three times faster than SFERS? 
even SSI takes only 14 months to process disability claims. What really upsets me is that on today's agenda, a police captain, applicant F, who retired on service retirement last June, got his IDR claim completed in less than 14 months. Do captains get preferential treatment over everybody else? Do they get to skip the line? Or which commissioner did he ask a favor of to move him up the list? I think the commission should answer why this particular applicant was moved ahead of other people. And also, you should divest yourself of Blackstone. They have a bad ESG agenda. Thank you. Thank you. Moderator, do we have any further callers? Madam Secretary, there are no further callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no further calls, public comment is now closed. Madam Secretary, do you want to call on item four, please? Item number four, action item. Approval of the minutes of the August 17, 2023 Retirement Board meeting. Move to approve the minutes. Okay, thank you. Is there a second? Second. Okay. We'll have public comment, please. Thank you. Calling in-person public comment. Seeing none. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Okay, Madam Secretary, what's um, well to have has been moved and seconded. All those in favor, aye, aye. Aye. Those opposed, say nay. Motion passes. Madam Secretary, next item. Thank you. Item number five, action item, consent calendar. Okay, we have all that information in our packets. Is there a motion to approve the consent? Now, calendar, or does anybody want to ex take one item out? Motion to approve. Second. Okay, Madam Secretary, call public comment. Thank you. Calling in-person public comment for this item. Seeing none. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, we have one caller on the line. Thank you. Caller, please state your name. Your two minutes begin when you speak. Again, this is Kevin McPherson. Now, this, on this particular item, I just want to know why applicant F, F's IDR claim was processed in 14 months. That is way faster than I'm getting complete on mine. Thank you. Thank you for your call. Moderator, are there any further calls? Madam Secretary, there are no further callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no further calls, public comment is now closed. Great. Um, it's been moved and seconded. All those in favor say aye. 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 Those opposed? If none, motion passes. Thank you. Call number six, please. Thank you. Item number six, action item. Review and acceptance of supplemental COLA analysis as of July 1, 2023. Good morning, commissioners. We ask that you accept Chiron's supplemental COLA analysis as of July 1, 2023 and direct retirement staff to notify SPURS retirees that no supplemental COLA is payable effective July 1, 23, under Charter Section 88.526-3. Discussion item. It's action but, item, thank you. It's an action item, sorry. Do you wanna, does anybody have any questions? Comments, if not? Any adoption except the supplemental COLA report? Is there a second? 
Sorry, Allison, you looked like you wanted to say something. <laughs> I was going to second. Just please make sure to turn on your mics when you oh. speak. Sorry. Thank you. Second. Okay. It's been moved and seconded. Okay. Let's call the roll then. A vote. Public comment. Public comment. Do we have any in-person public comment on this item? This is ridiculous. Seeing none, a reminder to callers to press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Okay, it's been moved and seconded. All those in favor of the motion, please say aye. 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 Those opposed, nay, say nay. None. Motion passes. Madam Secretary, next item, please. Item number seven, discussion item. Committees report goals to the board. Commissioners, what you see in this uh, agenda item really is a culmination of the work with my teams to determine what we need to accomplish this year in committees, as well as the work of uh, all the committee chairs. Um, and we, we worked hard collectively to set up the calendar and the agenda items that, that are in these materials. Um, there's a lot of important work to be done in committees this year, and I look forward to having those on the calendar and moving through those uh, in an efficient and effective manner. Um, we have focused on maximizing participation in the committee meetings, um, and we have worked very hard uh, to accommodate schedules. I do know that there might be some cases already where we cannot have all committee members uh, there, but we've done our best to, to um, get things on the calendar and, and, and accommodate where we can. What you have in your materials is a report from each of the committee chairs. Um, I think the materials are uh, relatively self-explanatory, um, but I am happy to turn it over to the president or any of the committee chairs should they want to talk about uh, uh, what is what is uh, follows by memo. I, I, I'll, I have a few comments and one's only, and they're very brief, but and you've heard me say this before, but um, it's, really important that we stick to the um, quorum requirements of each committee. And uh, in order to do so, the timeliness of our responses is important. And um, it's all spelled out on the last item on your, the first page of this item. And I can only encourage, I thank all the board chairs for their, their leadership and I can only encourage our, my fellow board members to um, stick to what we're talking about in terms of timeliness and attendance. In the, on the attendance issue, and, and I'll, I'll put this out there, in the event that there's a problem that would necessitate the cancellation of a last minute committee meeting, I will attend that committee meeting if there's a quorum problem with one. And, um, and that'll solve that. And I, I hope we don't have too many of those. And hopefully we don't even have any. But um, uh, it applies a lot to the investment committee because uh, a lot of times we have people flying in. In the past, we've had to cancel things right w when they were in the air. So uh, that's the end of my comments. Does anybody else have any comments? If not, 
I just briefly, I, I wanted to thank you, uh, Commissioner Helfand, for that I, uh, attendance, and, and especially the committees and quorum is difficult, the calendaring, and uh, uh, making sure that we're all here in person and, and ready to go is uh, absolute priority. And um, and I know that we've heard a lot about some of the challenges just make coordinating everybody's schedules, so that you're willing to step in on committees to on an ad hoc basis in an emergency is good, but I definitely want to emphasize the same point that we need to do everything we can to make these meetings that we were appointed to this body uh, to attend Great. and participate in. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, okay, can we call for public comment? Oh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> I have one. <clears throat> one further comment. Obviously, these committees have a way of overlapping. So just to give you a notice, in terms of the Governance Committee, one of the topics I plan on driving is the issue about decision quality. So when you see that education plan, it is because a lot of the decision quality issues wind up under the Investment Committee, and where we recently have changed and are planning to even delegate more authority to staff for investment decisions, this issue of decision quality even rises even further. So it's, it's part of governance issue, that's why it shall be discussed in governance committee, but how a lot of the execution will take in investments. So it's why it will, I may ask Commissioner uh, Thomas, who is the chair of that committee, to consider adding some of that time for that topic, because it also has to be coordinated with the CEO, CIO's plans for developing staff's skills and process in decision quality. So we have to approach it from both ends. For the board to understand the decision quality, we have to also have a a little bit more information and training on that subject. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Call for public comment. Thank you. Do we have an in-person public comment on this item? Discussion item. Seeing none, a reminder to callers to press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Right. Call the next item, please. Item number eight, discussion item, Chief Executive Officer's Report. Uh, commissioners, we have, um, or I have two items to, to note in this report here today. Um, first, we have issued an RFQ for a stewardship and corporate governance strategy consultant, so we're now in a blackout period. To provide some context for that, um, We've had our ESG program as it stands today up and running for about five years, um, and we think it's an appropriate time to continue our evaluation and, and plan uh, of the program and plan for the future. Um, this consultant will provide specialized services in the areas particularly of our first pillar related to asset uh, stewardship and, and corporate governance. Um, so, so we will provide uh, updates throughout the process, but uh, most importantly, wanted to let you all know per our policy that we are in a blackout period. Uh, secondly, um, we've had some questions uh, and therefore want to provide an update on uh, 10, with respect to 10 up, and I was going to turn it over to Cecilia to provide that update. Good morning, board members. I wanted you to be aware that in mid-August, a class notice went out to certain SFRS members, either in email or through a postcard notifying them of a tentative class action settlement. That stemmed from a 
security incident with one of SFRS's members that occurred, uh, sorry, not members, with one of the vendors that occurred in February of 2020. And now that there's been a tentative settlement, uh, what people need to do is they either make a claim, which entitles them to $60 in credit monitoring, or they can opt out and pursue their own lawsuit. They have until October 25th to submit the claim or opt out. If they do nothing, then they are subject to the terms of the settlement, but they don't get any of the benefits of it. Um, but anyway, if you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. That card was mailed to all members? So it went by email primarily. If we didn't have an email address on file, then a postcard was sent. And it only went to the members whose personal information was exposed. So people who didn't hear anything, oh. that means it wasn't exposed. Okay, thank you. That's everything I had on the CEO report, unless there's anything else that you have questions right. on. Um, and you are, you are looking forward to your presentation at the conferences in Stanford? Uh, yes, thank you. <laughs> Great. Best of luck. I'm, I'm really sorry I was, didn't know about it earlier. Okay. I would have put on. Okay, um, we'll have public comment, please. Thank you. Do we have any in-person public comment on this item? Seeing none, a reminder to callers to press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, we have no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. It's a nice time, a, a good time to do this. Um, well, let's keep, let's keep going. I, I'll see how these go, and we'll talk about when we might want to break for lunch, okay? Um, so let's call, call the next item. Thank you. Item number nine, discussion item, fiduciary governance training. Good morning, board members. I uh, will be giving the fiduciary governance training in conjunction with Ashley Dunning from Nossiman. And um, I think we have a slideshow that should be going up. There we go. Uh, next slide, please. Is this deep, was that deep in the weeds? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> go back one slide. <laughs> also, yeah. And also, it was a fall theme. We had. Ah, <laughs> oh, good. All right. Yes. Okay. So, uh, next slide, please. Uh, we're starting off with an overview to let you know what what lies ahead. Um, our last fiduciary training was actually in December 2022. So we will start off with a recap. Then we will give some new uh, do's and don'ts. And finally, we're going to do a deeper dive in two topics, uh, and that sets the stage for what's coming up in 2024. And those two topics are the Board Education Needs Assessment and the Governance Report. And now turning it off over to Ashley for the next slide. Thank you, Cecilia. My mic's on? Sounds yes. like good. Um, all right, so recap of the presentation we provided to the board back in December. Um, just 
to remind everyone but not repeat. We've reviewed your fiduciary duties of um, prudence and loyalty to the members and beneficiaries. We distinguished between the role that the settler, the city, has versus the role of each of you as trustees of this plan, administering the plan and investing its assets. Uh, we did provide some do's and don'ts there. We've tried to mix it up with some additional do's and don'ts that we'll go through next. We talked about the very important uh, oversight and monitoring responsibility that the board has with respect to all the different functions of SFRS. We also focused on prudent delegation uh, as a fiduciary uh, act and talked about various models for investment delegation specifically. We walked through investment due diligence and what that looks like. Uh, and then we described the planned investment delegation report that we were going to do at that point uh, that has sub subsequently been completed, presented, and acted upon by the board. So now moving on to the next slide, please with the do's and don'ts. So now we've come up with some concrete examples to bring home those principles you've been hearing about. Uh, and the first item there you'll see is the role of committee members. What you wanna do as a committee member is engage actively in the committees that you're assigned to, come prepared to meetings, provide insight, oversight, ask questions, and follow the principles set forth in the terms of reference, which there is a separate one, as you know, for each committee. Uh, things that you should not be doing as, as committee members is interact interacting directly with SFRS staff instead of going through the CEO, CIO, uh, talking directly to a third party, uh, requesting particular consideration of special projects. So one example of this might be talking to uh, a legislator with your retirement board hat and asking for an expansion of benefits or something along those lines that would be uh, mixing of the settler and board functions. We welcome questions, comments as we go through this as well. So this is an education, but we don't need to simply talk to you or talk at you if you have things that you wanna share. Um, we're happy to, to engage in that discussion. The second topic we've identified is the role of the president of the board as well as the chairs of the committee. And the do here is that those, uh, those individuals act as the point people for the CEO and CIO with respect to the topics within their jurisdiction uh, and conduct meetings fairly to solicit input from all trustees. There was reference in the prior, one of the prior agenda topics of the report that the committee chairs provided to the board regarding their objectives. That's exactly in line with this do. Uh, the don't would be if any of those individuals who are in leadership roles uh, don't um, participate, don't show up at meetings, don't do what they're supposed to do in a timely manner, uh, and, and in that way abdicate from their leadership role. Next slide, please. So the next item is board training. 
And what you want to do is attend all trainings at the board, which you are currently doing here, and also choosing relevant training opportunities that are circulated every month to learn more about topics of importance. Uh, the don't here would be missing the SFRS training opportunities and also attending conferences or trainings that have only a peripheral relevance to your role as a, as a board member. Uh, just a quick question on conferences, just let it, so we can vet it. Is it safe to say that conferences that are on the sheet are sort of pre-vetted as being applicable and then we should seek guidance for any conferences that are not? Is that a? That's correct. Thank you. And the board will be going through a sort of a needs assessment, education needs assessment that's later in our presentation. So we'll continue to refine what the board members feel they need to properly do their job. Um, but that's a great touch point that you are provided with a chart of already vetted opportunities. And as importantly to Cecilia's comment, you're provided with training such as this one on site that are of minimal cost to the organization. So those also are, are opportunities that people should not miss. Can I, can, I, can I go back to an item, a question? What, in your fir our first on slide five, when you started this, and the interaction with third parties, I'd like to drill down if that's a situation that we are we constantly take public comment and we don't respond to public comment as a, as a term of <laughs> reference as well. Right. And, um, but invariably, we are contacted directly as a board member about a position that was presented in a public comment. Does, um, that, does that fall into that pew? Uh, it it does. It also falls into the one that I'm just about to talk okay, about. I'll, so I'll why don't I address you, it in that context? Because yeah, um, that's an important one. So for back to slide six, uh, and this is board responsibilities. So um, I'll start with the do, and then we'll get to the don't. Okay. Um, actually, now I realize it was going to be later, but I will touch on it here okay. since we're talking about it. So board members. Uh, the do is board members participate actively and thoughtfully with the CEO and CIO within subject matter of your jurisdiction. So the policy objectives of SPURS. Um, the don't is directing action where authority has been delegated. And that goes back to a discussion we had um, at the beginning of the, for example, of the investment delegation. When, when that function has already been delegated, directing action within that rubric would not be appropriate. Um, but so that I respond uh, timely to the uh, board president's question, when you're communicating with, if a third party contacts you relating to SFRS business, um, what I'd say best practice would be number one, make sure your CEO and CIO know so that no one's blindsided. Uh, secondly, uh, be in listening mode as opposed to providing information on behalf of the board unless the board has authorized you to provide information on the board. Certainly, you're all public officials since you sit on this board. 
Um, you may, in fact, also wear other hats. But if you're talking about SFRS business, consider yourself to be um, needing to follow all the obligations of a SFRS board member uh, as a fiduciary, not to um, speak on behalf of the board when you don't have that, uh, that authority to do so. Certainly listen and then report back to your CEO and CIO so that she knows what type of information you're getting and can either correct it or can respond to it, whatever is appropriate. So if I was to translate it into the personally how I see this item, um, the information that we deal with in terms of, and I'll, I'll focus on public comment or reach outs to board members via mail, email or whatever, but it's a one-on-one. -on -one. Mm -hmm. It might be a group email, but it comes in. Okay. That is, an in, the question is, that is an instance that under the, our terms of reference that we are taking that in for our personal information in order that we can act as a, a, in a proper way as a board member. So we have a universe. We have information that's coming in, but it's not in the term of reference that we act on it. Correct. In other words, we don't have an obligation to respond. We don't respond to public comment, so we treat it like that. But it does shape our decision-making, cannot help. Poten cannot potentially, help if, it, if it's relevant. I think there's different things going on between um, how you respond to public comment in an open meeting versus the other in the sense that, and I'll defer to your general counsel, but um, sort of generally, one doesn't respond to non-agendized topics to have big discussions about them because that's right. a violation of the open meeting law. Uh, in terms of the on-the-side discussion, it's more a matter of proper governance, who speaks for the board, who does not. Yes, you can be in listening mode. Another point I'd make is that you receive a lot of confidential information as board members, whether it's about the investment portfolio, about people's um, disability retirement applications, right. whatever it might be. And you have to be very careful not to impart anything that's a confidential piece of information um, to another who's not entitled to have it. So, so that's another element that you need to keep in mind when you're communicating with others about SFRS. Okay. Um, well, I mean, it's a, this, is, this is important. This yeah, no, it's concerned. a great topic. I'd appreciate that for the... How we comport ourselves in, in this situation is, and uh, your point is even more taken on the investment side because we're trading a lot of information and we're, not, and we're putting out money. We're putting out big money of support in various uh, groups and, and investments, which could, if it was public, have some influence on it. So am I right in saying, sort of filtering it down to an, if I get a letter, an email, from an interested party that A, gave public testimony, B, um, had transmitted through public comment or whatever, and that was the sole purpose of that contact to me. Question, what do I do? What am I expected to do and what is the norm? What's normative? Me, I send it to the chief executive and chief investment officer. 
that that is not only the norm but that's the best practice okay. you, you should be referring to the point person for the organization who is your ceo cio okay great thank you if, if i may add um I, on this point, there is a lot of good information in the communications policy that we enhanced this year and you all um, uh, signed off on. Um, and, and so two areas of note there, and I'm working off memory, I don't have it in front of me, um, but there is a, an element of the communication policy that indicates board members can share basic information, um, but anything beyond basic, factual, straightforward information uh, should not be conveyed uh, if there are questions, uh, be it members, uh, be it stakeholders, those um, should be directed uh, to me. Um, th there is also a section in the communications policy about the role of the spokesperson, and only the spokesperson for the board can convey information or decisions on behalf of the board. And, and through the governance policies, the board president is the spokesperson. So to Ms. Dunning's point, sort of being in listening mode um, is an effective way to approach that because to the extent that there are decisions that need to be conveyed or actions taken, typically that would come through the spokesperson. Great. Thank you. And I, I would add one more consideration when you're meeting with third parties, which under the Brown Act, you have to be very careful not to turn it into a serial meeting to which the public was not invited. So you shouldn't be getting information from a third party telling you, oh, this other board member thinks X. You know, the third party shouldn't be a conduit for board members to communicate outside the public realm. So just one other thing that comes into play when you're meeting privately, which ideally you would not be doing as a best practice. Okay, let me throw out, throw out another, but uh, sorry to hog these the questions, but um, in the past, I get, I, as a board member, not only this board, but other boards I've sat on, I got a call from somebody that says, who I'm, I know, who's, that's tangentially involved in the issue, that let's have a cup of coffee. Let's meet and talk about it. And it's just one-on-one, -on -one. and maybe one-on-two, but that's, that's the max. That's, that's legit, right? Well, you have to be careful because the one-on-two could be a quorum of a committee if they're communicating on the right. subject no, of a this committee. This would be just a board. Yeah, I mean, yeah, this is the full board. Okay, so. But, that, but, but um, Ms. Mangova's point is very important because you have such a small board, relatively speaking, compared to your peers and very small committees, therefore. Two people of a three-person standing committee is a quorum. So, um, yeah, you have to be very, very careful about that. <clears throat> Can those two people on the same committee meet as long as the topic is not something that's what that committee deals with? Of course. With? <laughs> yeah, of, of course. course. Well, let's, you got to be careful when you but give declarative that, warnings that's like that. Let's be specific because there's already enough confusion going on about who you can talk to, when you can talk to them, and when you can't right. talk no, to them. No, within the topics within the jurisdiction of the committee, but if the committee is, say, the governance committee and you're talking about something that falls potentially within governance or um, some other committee that has broader jurisdiction, just, it, just be careful. Okay. All right. Sorry. No, that's good. Those appreciate are excellent it. questions, and I appreciate the sort of hypo, non-hypos, because that's what brings well, uh, uh, clarity to this. We're, this this organization is so complex, and if you break it down into the ver areas that we're involved in, that there are so many inputs that come in. It, it's we're going into dangerous territory if we take 
all of that and throw it without a filter. Exactly, and each of you have other lives, and um, we understand that you have day jobs, and so it's important also to just put the Spurs responsibilities into a separate box and recognize that there are special rules that apply. Um, <clears throat> so it you can't be discussed in ways that you might discuss other aspects of your work or lives. Uh, all right, next slide, please. This is our final slide with do's and don'ts. And we've touched on these a little bit already. Actually, Cecilia, you're taking the first one. Yes, so exactly. We did, we did get already into the next do and don't, uh, which what you wanna do is ask questions and request information with the exclusive purpose of fulfilling your fiduciary duties. You, the don't here is, is asking questions or participating with uh, a priority other than in your capacity as a board member. The final one, communications with members, um, also refers to something that was alluded to or that Ms. Romano mentioned about communicating simple information when asked general benefits questions from a member and then referring to members to SF Connect. Um, I, uh, another more general comment there is there's a lot of really good information on the SFERS website, so even if it's not relating to member benefits, in addition to referring somebody to your very busy CEO and CIO, uh, to the extent that there is a report that is on your website or a um, meeting agenda topic that has good backup that will respond to a member's question to you, it's perfectly reasonable also to refer people to the website. I one more comment on this. And I've, I've experienced this through, um, especially on the health service system board, which I sat on for quite some time. Um, you have, we have to come to a real, I'm, I'm an appointed representative on board. Um, we have people that are elected by their constituencies and retirees in the health service system, as well as the SFERS, are a big group. And they have needs, in some cases, more, that are a little, need a little tender love care, so to speak. And knowing a board member, an elected board member of, represents them on the board is, I think you don't want, we don't want to cut that access off. We don't want to pedestrianize it, but we don't want to cut it off, I don't think. So there, it, we're not saying that an elected official or a rep of that group can't have access and discuss the benefits? So, so there are, I need to unpack a couple of things that were just said. Um, one is, from a fiduciary perspective, one is, um, although each of you come to this board from different places, some of you are appointed by the city, some are elected by retirees or by actives, once you're here, you're not here to represent that group. You're here to act on behalf of all of the members and beneficiaries of the plan. So you all have that sole exclusive responsibility. That, that is the exclusive benefit rule. That's, that's the primary duty rule. Um, that said, absolutely somebody who is a retiree, say, of SFERS is going to be viewed as one who maybe understands better the problems of retirees and certainly will not turn a, a deaf ear to retirees who are speaking to them. On the contrary, they're probably viewed as somebody who's gonna be able to um, hear retirees better. 
What that person should not be doing, though, is two things. One, either counseling somebody on their own benefits. That's the job of your staff here. That is a very um, treacherous road <laughs> to be on because inevitably somebody's going to get incorrect information as well informed as each of you are. You're not to be counseling members. Um, number two, there should never be a perception or a reality that somebody has special access to special privileges at SFERS because they know you. Um, and there was a reference in some of the public comment here to some speculation around that topic, and you can see how destructive that can be to an organization if, if people are viewed as having special access because they, are, they know how to, they know your number. So both of those points are really important to, to address and, def and not have become problems for the organization, either special access or you're providing specific information on people's benefits. And you do that by directing them through the proper channels very nicely. <clears throat> I don't know, Cecilia, if you have other comments on that. I think I responded, actually, I responded in my don'ts on that one yeah. to, to yeah. the scenario presented. Okay, thanks for that. Right, no, I agree. Certainly. Just a question to clarify, sorry to build on what yep. um, the chair is saying. Uh, with, taking into account what you just said, Still, though, it's within the scope of a board member's responsibility and, and ability to meet with a constituents group, listen to what their thoughts and concerns are, and then direct them to the appropriate channel, uh, so long as you're not doing roles that have already been delegated to staff. Absolutely, and I suspect, I won't speak for your CEO, CIO, but having somebody be a sounding board like that who can convey concerns, perhaps, or interests, um, that may be out there to your CEI, CEO and CIO is invaluable um, because you don't want concerns to go without being heard and, and at least being able to be addressed through the proper channels. Well, this goes hand in glove with what you, um, Allison had mentioned about the reference to communications and the like and the, our, how we comport ourselves in that. Right. So that, that because we don't want to have a waterfall of superfluous stuff that doesn't coming into the, the uh, stress, you know, uh, overwork group and um, diluting what they're doing. So. Precisely, and if there's misinformation out there, this is something also that your that your staff can address either through your newsletters or through other communications, uh, and if you alert. Ms. Romano to that, she can address it. Okay, thank you. Right, and I would just add that you're thinking of them as members to whom you also, you owe a duty, not, not as much constituents who elected you to the position, but think of it, it would be aiding members or listening to what they have to say and passing it on. Right, yep. yeah. Okay. All right, next slide, please. All right, so our next item here is the board education needs assessment. In the contract that the city attorney's office has with Nossiman, we included in our scope of work that uh, the firm would conduct an annual retirement board education needs assessment, uh, survey and prepare a report for the retirement board. Um, this is already underway, uh, the CEO, CIO, uh, distributed um, 
I believe the needs assessment already, is that correct? A, a survey, correct. A survey, right. Okay, and so um, anyway, that, that's sort of the background, then I will turn it over to Ashley about where we are. Next slide, please. All right, so my understanding is that some, but not all of the board members have responded to this. So this is your tickler reminder to please uh, respond to that if you haven't yet, and we might send out a reminder to those who have not yet responded because that will be input that's important for the governance committee to consider at its upcoming meeting in October um, to take potentially recommend next steps in terms of refining uh, the, the education plan and training opportunities identified in the reports that you get every month and perhaps also coming back with a calendar of on-site training that you'll have for the upcoming year. Maybe this new uh, consultant that we're in the process of now hiring and maybe on board, who knows, six months from a year from now, whether or not this issue about board education needs assessment, obviously each board member can and should be asked the question, but whether or not we need another pair of eyes from the outside looking in and telling us, we think you need this. Tricky question, perhaps maybe that's why we did hire an awesome firm to help us, let alone maybe staff has a way of, please consider these topics, why? Not because they're cute. Well board maybe you need to improve your process that's a that's a good comment and um, and perhaps one way to incorporate that through the governance committee will be soliciting input from your uh, top staff and maybe even consultants as to uh, both education needs and um, opportunities and needs and and incorporating that into the report but maybe then Obviously, our survey results coming through you, so there's some filtering and emphasis that goes on there. That's one way of getting it. That's one. Two, per, I'm thinking perhaps times staff is talking to us and they want us to understand something because we will wind up acting or voting on it, that maybe staff would want to encourage us, oh, by the way, folks, you only have so many hours a year on education. Maybe you ought to prioritize this particular topic. We've That's tried what I meant to say, and I think oh. I wasn't clear enough. I agree with you. Okay, That's great. exactly okay. right. Hopefully then, uh, Allison, you understand that your folks should feel welcome to uh, make suggestions to the board. Thank you. That includes you too, Janet. All right, that, that's excellent. So next slide, please. Next slide, please. We should be on slide uh, 10. 10. Here we go. Oh, we need to go back one. Yes. Have we missed? No. Yeah, we should have. There, there we go. go. Okay. All right. So aside from the education needs assessment, we have asked uh, Nasiman as the governance consultant to assist with an every other year governance report uh, beginning in 2022. So we're, we're ready for one shortly. And you'll be hearing a little bit from Ashley about the process for gathering information that will culminate in a report. Next slide, please. 
Okay, so this is a, just a, to let you know what's coming up, which is in 2024, we're planning to do this governance report that we're required to do under our contract. Uh, we'll consult with the governance committee in October uh, a bit about the scope of that report, uh, what we intend to cover, and also seek um, some guidance as to priorities that the governance committee may have we anticipate that this governance report will be both uh, reflective on how things have been going and uh, looking forward to potential improvements in the future. Next slide, please. And one consideration that we'll be looking at is whether as part of that governance report we want to do some, uh, or it would be helpful to do a board member self-assessment uh, as part of that, uh, and that would involve another survey, uh, more input from you all about how you all think things are going from a governance perspective. And we would look at some of your core responsibilities and how each of you view uh, you individually and you as a group are performing. Next slide, please. Can I, can I? Yep, of course. Ask a question. Yep. Please. Um, in terms of the reports that come back to the board, and uh, shame on me, I'm not quite sure I remember what it really looked like, but in terms of the, what we get, when, when I, in my business, we do a full 360 degree view of a, a client or, a, or whatever subject matter, and I mean, we think, I think in terms of a wheel with green, green yellow, and red, uh, and uh, where the consultant or the subject matter expert or the whoever's judging or presenting the report, it's like a teacher, we're getting a grade. Do we get that in terms of uh, our peer groups or on, in terms of the universe you deal with and the data you have? You're benchmarking it against that. You're benchmarking spurs against that. I'm going to need to put some more thought into exactly okay. how I want okay. to present this yeah, to you. Um, and I'll also look for guidance from your staff and from the governance committee and from the board president as to what would be most helpful to you. Um, and each organization is different. Uh, while we have about 41 public plans in California and we have hundreds, if not, I'm not even sure how many we have across the country, but hundreds certainly. Yeah. Um, you each have unique sort of governance structures, approaches, and so uh, uh, when you do some sort of benchmarking like that, you want to make sure you're comparing apples to apples. I'm not sure that that's necessarily the most yeah. beneficial to you, but but I am open well, to however this would be most useful This, this to is you. all top line. I mean, this yeah. is all not down in the, the weeds. Right. Like, like where we started. This is like basically a lot of the things that are on this slide, the key core issues, how you rate us. And, and Joe's obviously had a governance committee. I'll look forward to him talking about this and we should chat about it that in the, in the committee, but right. I, I'd just be interested in seeing um, what your position, 
how you do that, how you, and I'm sure we're not the first, I'm the first that ever asked that question. Right, right. Okay. No, well, we, we will try to make it as um, useful a report for you as possible. It's always nice as a board member to know whether, you know, whether you spend your time or how you're rated in terms of the, your competitors or your colleagues. If Joe agrees, we'll see how we go forward. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, and, and this last slide is really about focusing on the governance framework that we look to uh, as um, assessing your effectiveness as opposed to saying, are you as good as X other system, perhaps as useful or maybe even more useful as are you good at what you're supposed to be doing? Are, are you meeting your responsibilities? With respect to spurs, um, not how does necessarily how does that compare to unnamed or named other system? Thank you. You can have the best structure, but if you don't have the best people, you get a mediocre result. You can have the best people and a mediocre structure and get mediocre results. But again, it's. It takes not simply the best people and the best structure. I assume we have some goal about rates of return and taking care of the members. But uh, you then need to be led well, which is a group activity, which is always a problem. But uh, I want to say there's simple ways of measuring it. The numbers on performance, like we're going to do later today, that's easy compared to what you're talking about. Yet, what you're talking about is more important than the investment numbers. Yep. So I'm agreeing with you, but how to do it is, will take some time. That's all we have, unless there are further questions. I have a, a question, because I want to understand the cl clarification. Uh, at the first, don't, because it's in the verb about what it, the do not. It almost reads like board is not supposed to talk to staff members other than the CEO, CIO. But that's not really what it is. It's just if you're requesting particular consideration. That's the clause Trying that's to get important. something done. Yeah, right. That's where the conflict starts to occur. Right, there you go. Because it occurs later, too, the same issue on the third page about board members directing work based on priorities. That's where you have to be careful because I think we need to talk to staff, not though obviously keeping the CIO and CIO informed of what we're doing so we're all working collaboratively together. But if you you think take it too literally don't talk to somebody it starts to erect walls that shouldn't be there that's one too but I'll just show you how well I understand it the word nuance I've been I probably heard a couple hundred times in the last couple of months because all that stuff going on in Washington DC but every other person talking is a lawyer so they always say that word nuance 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 so I'll give you an example in my immediate prior job I had a lot of subordinates and I was told them slash warned them when I ask you to do something assume it was an order and they go okay we understand that so you want to be polite but I asked you to do something that was an order now that's a sort of a different calling but around here the same potential for misunderstanding occurs if I go talk to somebody at the board of supervisors which I do I was with 10 of them the other morning trying to say well I happen to be on the board but this is not a board issue so but it's very easy for them to think I'm speaking for the board so again the obligation is on us to understand how easy for it is to someone listening to us to misunderstand or misproject that 
they think I'm playing some sort of a game. I am trying to speak for the board, but I'm not, even though you deny it. So it's like we need to understand how that misperception of people we're trying to talk to occurs. How do you prevent it? Short of not talking to anybody, you just have to be extremely careful and say, I'm not representing the board or the system. I That's what we have a spokesperson. We have two spokespersons to do that. It's not me. Okay. So just trying to make a clarification about what that don't applies to, which verb it applies to, as well as trying to show you that the nuances of understanding how to be a good board member. Thank you. Both good points, and the uh, sentences are long and sometimes complex, and the don'ts, and every part of them are important. So thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. Watch your okay. verbs. Thanks for that. Thanks uh, for the grammar lesson. Well, I think the <laughs> verbs were right. I just think you have to read the whole sentence. <laughs> right, and I, I think you also hit it that it's directing work is the is the thing to be careful about when you're interacting with staff. If there's a request, it should go to the CEO, CIO. Thank you, AJ. Um, first, apologizing on behalf of all lawyers' love of the word nuance. Uh, <laughs> I have another now. question <laughs> to explore some of the nuance on this. Um, one, just uh, in some of the discussion, I want to just clarify, uh, not in directing work, but in informational sort of requests, is the best practice still to, as I understand it, the best practice is still to go through the CEO, CEO and then that disseminates down to staff. Most rather definitely. Rather than us go directly to the even if we might know who we think is the appropriate staff No, person. you should, and, and to Trustee Driscoll's point, uh, a question sounds like an order, right. uh, and you, no one should be ordering anybody, uh, well, and, and even shouldn't be ordering the CEO, CIO, unless the board has, but you should speak with Ms. Rana. Even for informational even, requests. Absolutely, yeah. But it's also, it's fine to also refer people to Sverse Connect if they have a particular issue as a member. You know, about oh, yeah, I meant for a board, sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. I guess the only caveat to that, and I defer to Ms. Romano on this, but with your actuary, because the actuary is also, actuarial services coordinator is a direct report to the board, you could speak to Jeanette for actuarial matters. It's a good clarification, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay, that was it then. Thank you. Calling in-house public comment on this item. Seeing none, a reminder to any callers to press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, we have no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Thank you. You're going to need. Do you want to? Does everybody want to just push through that and then take a lunch break after? after you lunch. Yeah, we can do, do it here. All right. Well, let's. We're going to take a 10-minute break, and we'll come back and be rude and meet in front of everybody.
of Secure 2.0, particularly of Secure 2.0. Provide the semi-annual performance open session at this time great thank you um, we are on item 10 correct yes item number 10 discussion item San Francisco deferred compensation plan monthly report and review of SD SFDCP investment performance for the first half of calendar year 2023 great. you got it Thank you, Ms. Armandino, and thank you, President Helfon, for suggesting the lunch break. I would not want to stand in the way of your lunch. So um, I hope that you can enjoy that while you are getting an update here. Um, I'm here to provide the monthly update on the SFDCP, and then I'll pass it over to Greg Ungerman, our investment consultant from Callan, to provide the semi-annual performance review, which is the first half of this year. Um, so commissioners, as you may recall from my report last month, I discuss the implementation of SECURE 2.0, particularly Section 603. As you may recall, there was a lot of industry and plan sponsor pushback on implementing a Roth Age 50 catch-up requirement, also known as a RCR, by the year end for those who are earning more than 145K. Um, I believe uh, Commissioner Thomas had requested actually um, some uh, round numbers on uh, the percentage of employees who work in San Francisco that would potentially be subject to the 145K, and that's about 25%. So I wanted to provide that with, uh, with this update. Um, as a result, um, on August 25th, the IRS released notice 2023-62. A copy of that notice is in your materials this notice includes limited guidance concerning the operation of the RCR, the Roth H-50 catch-up requirement, and allows a two-year administrative period. The IRS cautions, though, that notice 2023-62 is not intended to provide comprehensive guidance on Section 603, but additional guidance will be forthcoming. But in short, with respect to how it applies to the SFDCP, the notice provides that participants still can make catch-up contributions in 2023, which addresses the error the board was informed about last month. Congress has already indicated resolution on this provision um, via a future technical correction legislation. So 2024 and 2025 tax years would count as an administrative transition period, and this means that all catch-up contributions, including pre-tax, would be treated as satisfying the RCR, the Roth catch-up requirement. 
requirement, even if those catch-up contributions are not Roth. So we will share more of these details with the Deferred Compensation Committee on October 4th. We don't expect things to change much implementation-wise as it is mandatory. Um, and we have already engaged the controller's office and are currently routing business requirements as we are anticipating a year in implementation. But this transition period simply allows us to ease up on the gas pedal a little and um, allows possible consideration of implementation of the mandatory secure 2.0 provisions not earlier than January 2025. So we will discuss this more with the committee and get their guidance as well. Um, but I'd like to pause here and answer any questions on Secure 2.0 and the recent notice from the IRS. Any questions? Okay. Okay, great, thank you. So moving on, as you know, the SFDCP also offers a self-directed brokerage account um, via TD Ameritrade. And SDB assets make up about 1% of plan assets, about 52 million. It was announced around two years ago, um, Schwab's acquisition of TDA. And in true Schwab fashion, all TDA accounts will now become Schwab accounts with new Schwab account numbers and Schwab login credentials. Participants will now have a personal choice retirement account called the PCRA where they will have access to stocks, funds, and eligible investments on the Schwab platform. SDP participants receive numerous communications on this from Schwab and Q3, as well as a transition reminder and a setup notice on August 8th for those who have not already taken action. You can see a copy, a sample copy of those communications also provided to you in your materials. As you may recall, equities and ETFs traded free on the ETF platform. This carries over. And in addition, thousands of mutual funds will also trade free on Schwab's mutual fund OneSource platform. So that is an addition for SDB account holders. More details can be found at welcome.schwab.com. Finally, the SFDCP team and Boya have been hard at work in preparing for NRSM in October. NRSM stands for National Retirement Security Month. It used to be a week and then Congress made it a month. I'm excited to announce that our landing page, sfdcp.org NRSM, will be live in the coming week. And I'd like to personally invite the board members to attend our live session um, on October 18th at noon at the SF Main Library, which is across the way there, um, in the Latino Room. The topic will be six tips to avoid retirement FOMO. FOMO stands for fear of missing out. And <laughs> it's my birthday, October 18th. <laughs> oh, happy early birthday. <laughs> and attendees will be given a free prize and a light snack will be served. If you cannot make this in-person event, you're welcome to attend our weekly webinars where we host a different topic each week I would recommend, if you had to choose one, the planning for a lifetime of caregiving on Wednesday, October 11th, as that is a very popular topic amongst our planned demographics. Many of us are stuck in the sandwich generation, and this webinar will provide tools and insights to help with better planning. 
Also attached is the monthly activity report, and that is my monthly update. If there are no questions, mm -hmm. I'd like to hand it over now to Mr. Ungerman to walk the board through the fund performance for the first half of this year. Great. Great. Uh, well, I'll jump right in as um, I guess we're sharing, uh, sharing the content uh, on the screen as it pulls up. Overall, it's a very good report. Absolute returns uh, were exactly the opposite from 2022, which was a very painful year for both stocks and bonds. 2023, both first and second quarter, uh, got off on a very strong footing. Uh, I've included a number of capital markets. I was just going to touch on a couple capital market uh, topics just to set us up as we read the performance report and look at the active funds in your plan. Uh, page three here shows the year-to-date column, and this is all through June 30th. Uh, and the quick observation here is U.S. large cap really outperformed all the other asset classes. And you can see that identified by the S&P 500 up almost 17% for the first two quarters. The Russell 2000 is small cap stocks in the U.S., uh, only half, not even half uh, as much, only up 8%. Uh, in international land, the world XUS uh, was up just over 11%, so still very strong absolute results, uh, but emerging markets really paled in comparison to the developed markets. You'll see emerging markets uh, was, wasn't quite 5% on a year-to-date basis. That's an important point because within your active international fund, it's two managers, they both have uh, fairly healthy allocations to the emerging market, uh, which is about 30% of the non-U.S. equity market. Uh, on the fixed income side, a very nice return, up 2%. Recall again, in 2022, the bond market really suffered with rising interest rates uh, and was down negative double digits. Uh, it bounced back quite, quite nicely uh, in the first two quarters. Uh, we show a number of other various different benchmarks, uh, but I wasn't going to uh, pursue them today in the interest of time. And turn to page four, because I think this is a very interesting uh, slide uh, when it comes to style. Recall you guys offer participants both large cap growth and large cap value for participants to choose from, and you'll note a fairly significant difference between the two. Recall 2022, value was very much in favor, a dramatic outperformance from growth that the winds of fate within style switched uh, and growth is handsomely outperformed. With the Russell 1000 growth, you can see on that top right-hand chart, up almost 13% for the quarter. And now looking at the trailing one-year results ended June 30th, up 27% with Russell 1000 value only up 11.5%. So again, a big switch, not only for your participants, but the underlying active managers as they um, um, pursue their investment strategies. It's, it's a very difficult market to keep up uh, in that setting. <laughs> the sectors on the bottom, you'll see tech, consumer discretionary, and uh, communication services we're all up double digits again for the quarter as a sector and whole. And I think the most interesting slide, uh, if you'll bear with me on slide five, uh, really dissects what's going on. And it's really the largest companies in the world, uh, happen to be US companies here, 
largest five have really driven the performance. So when you think of the Russell 1000 growth that I just showed you, that awesome return, uh, Apple is over 13%. When you put those five together, we're talking over 35% of the index is made up of five stocks. Uh, and they, they've all done really, really well. Obviously, a lot of different reasons. Uh, we can get into those at, at a later date. Uh, but again, it's a very, very um, concentrated market driven uh, by the largest companies. So again, a very, very difficult backdrop for an active manager with risk controls to outperform. So with that uh, backdrop, I'll turn your attention to uh, slide eight uh, and look at the market values just to acknowledge um, a couple of things happened uh, during the quarter. Actually, on June 30th, two new target date funds were added as T. Rowe Price, the new gl custom glide path manager, took over from Russell's management. Uh, you'll see the 2015 and the 2020 fund were added, so that's why there's zeros for the June 30th of 2022. Um, and you can see most of that money uh, came from the 2025 fund as well as the target date retirement fund, which is, is the caboose of all the, uh, if you will, of all the target date funds. Uh, total plan assets were at 4.7 billion, and that represents about a half a billion uh, increase over the trailing year. Stable value is the largest fund at roughly a billion and you'll see target date funds at about 900 million in total assets. Target date returns can be found on slide nine and we show the last half year ended June 30th on the far left hand side and as you go left to right longer periods are all annualized and the two observations I, which I think are great observations both the absolute returns have been fantastic. Uh, you'll see the, the longer dated funds, the 2065 through the 20, 2045, were up over 10% so far this year. Um, and then they're all outperforming their custom benchmarks as shown. And it, that's true as you move left to right over longer time periods. So again, that's an expression of, when I look at this, I know a lot of your active funds within the plan because that's what's being utilized in the target date funds have done well relative to their respective benchmarks. Uh, slide 10 looks at the uh, core offerings within the plan. Uh, and we color code it really to try to create a cheat sheet for you. Uh, green means it's performing in the top half of the per peer group with respect to the style that that fund is. So you could see stable value is in green across the board and everything one year and greater is annualized. The little number right next to the return is the actual peer group ranking, one being the best, a hundredth being the worst. And all the returns shown on the page are all net of fees. So it's really what participants eat. a lot eat. of green on those. And again, that's, that's the punchline. A lot of green, there's a few charts, the large cap value and large cap growth. You'll see blue, which means third quartile relative to the peer group. Uh, and then a, just a few, uh, fourth quartile in yellow, uh, largely on very short time frames. So again, a very, very strong report. We're gonna be taking uh, up the large cap active funds at the DCC meeting on October 4th in, in much more detail. Slide 11 uh, rounds out uh, the lineup. Uh, you'll see the international equity, and I mentioned these active managers have fairly 
uh, index size allocations to emerging markets. China, for instance, is the second largest country in the non-US equity world. Uh, and, uh, and that was a negative return for the last year. I think it's down about 9% this year uh, so far. That was challenged relative to the peer group, uh, but you'll see the performance re results are ahead of the benchmark in the period shown. The last page I turn you to is page 12 uh, that looks at these are the component funds of the target date funds that are not accessible to participants, just your custom target date manager. Uh, we've made some changes to this. Uh, so uh, as you might recall, the DFA, Inflation Protected Securities, and the well, WF stands for Wells Fargo, uh, which turned all spring short duration, have been eliminated. So those have been liquidated uh, and, and redeployed uh, based on T row prices um, schedule events. Bottom line is these tend to be much more volatile or very specific funds, uh, and they've generally done a very nice job with respect uh, to their specific mandates and, and peer groups. I'm happy to answer any questions, but that would conclude my formal remarks. Questions? It's nice to get new, good news. And then, Greg, can you um, talk a little bit about the IMS report and how the committee can use that as a book of reference? Yeah, so behind this presentation, there's uh, 150 pages or so. These are all the details. I spend a lot of time uh, looking through these to bring you what's the most important uh, components, um, but there's all sorts of portfolio characteristics, uh, history, risk statistics, and, and other details um, on all the funds offered within the plan. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a Rolodex, if you will, of. Um, all your favorite ingredients, uh, but the bottom line is the, the presentation I just reported from is really the top level um, specifics as it relates to net of fee fund performance. Well, it's certainly good to see what goes into the summary. I say that I know we just approved the forward calendar. The deferred comp committee is going to be talking about some of the large cap management issues, so it'll be a more in depth conversation there. But then to acknowledge in the report, T. Rowe Price had a good recovery from this year, a good bounce back. There'll be more to say about that, but other managers as well, we're going to look to see uh, how well they're performing over the long term. So more detailed conversation will take place at that committee meeting, and the committee will report out. Right. Excellent. Any questions, comments? Dan, you, you good? More? Yes, I am. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Should we call for a public comment? Yeah, please. Thank oh. you. Uh, calling in-person public comment on this item. Seeing none, a reminder to any callers to press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Can we have a call the next item, please? Thank you. Item number 11, discussion item, report on investment performance for quarter ended June 30. <clears throat> 
Well, Wilshire is setting up, I'll share a couple introductory uh, remarks to kick off the conversation. Um, first, I want to um, acknowledge and thank uh, the, the, the team that appears here, here on this memo that you see before you, uh, Han Pham, Patrick Lee, Kurt Breitberg, Alan Martins, and, and Dennis. Um, for, for their hard work. Uh, there are some other names that were involved uh, in this process as well. Um, Anna uh, Langs and, and Bajo. Um, we brought Wilshire on board. Um, what you see in, in the materials, there is a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes when onboarding a consultant to make sure that our numbers are flowing through their systems uh, and it's reported correctly. So um, the team here has put in tireless effort to, to get to where we are today, and I also want to thank Wilshire for, for their efforts uh, as well. Um, so what you see in this presentation today um, is, is what I'd sort of term step one. So we wanted to get the performance in front of you. There are items to come, uh, particularly in areas of attribution and, and on risk. Um, we've already discussed with Wilshire what those will be, um, but we want to make sure they're flowing through the systems and correct before we put those before the board. So, um, so this will be a bit of an iterative process, but I'm pleased that w where we are today and able to share this with you. Um, the final comment that I want to make um, as we go through performance for, for this period and, and frankly for, for future periods is that the, the performance is absolutely important. It is backward looking. Um, and so this is an indicator of how we've done. We are doing a lot of work today to figure out where we want to go and how to continue to improve uh, and enhance that risk-adjusted return. Uh, as you know, we're going to be doing the asset liability study. That will impact performance. We're doing thorough reviews uh, with our new consultant, Mercer, on the uh, equity and fixed in income asset classes. And uh, along with the team, we're having a lot of discussions about the portfolio construction within the asset classes and, and where we want to lean in or lean out based on the market environment. Um, so just wanted to provide that context as we look at where the performance ha has been uh, to date, and uh, it's a, obviously an ongoing effort to, to look forward. So with that, I'll turn it over to Ali to go through the performance presentation. Excellent. Uh, well, first, I just want to uh, thank everyone for the opportunity today to present a performance. Um, we've been looking forward to this since uh, we were selected as your consultant. And as Allison mentioned, a lot of work has gone in um, in a collaborative fashion with SFIRST staff um, in getting this deck together today. Also, as she mentioned, uh, this is going to be an iterative process in terms of building this report to reflect uh, the information that is uh, going to be very important for this board to consider as they evaluate historical performance. Um, things like attribution will be forthcoming. And you know you can almost think of this as a, as a living document, I would say, for the next you know, six to 12 months. Um, if there is feedback from the board in terms of things that they'd like to see that is not included in the report, we'd, we'd love to hear that because ultimately this board is, is, is this report is, is for you. In terms of the layout today, I'm going to touch on a couple things uh, with regard to the markets and the overall economy. Um, you just you got a, a nice summary from Callan in terms of uh, performance uh, more recently. So I'll try to avoid uh, duplication there, and then walk through some of the uh, more salient points in regards to your portfolio's performance up to this date, and then happy to take questions from there. So first, maybe starting on slide three, um, you get a, a review of some of the higher level commentary with regard to uh, the markets uh, in the second quarter. And again, some of this was already touched on, 
but what we've seen is a very stark rebound, particularly for public equities. Um, this really started at the tail end of, of 2022 and has continued into 2023. What's driven it has been a couple items. One, um, the tech sector has benefited from this dramatic interest in AI. And so you've seen a lot of the larger cap tech names uh, have really, really substantial positive returns in 2023. The other impact has been the uh, response to the inflation fight. Um, so we've seen more and more evidence that the Fed seems to be um, going in the direction of achieving the goal of a, of a soft landing. I think there's still some work to be done there in terms of the impact of higher interest rates throughout the broader economy. Um, you know, most of these interest rate hikes have taken place in the last nine months or so, uh, a good chunk of them, and, and these rate hikes take time to work their way through all aspects of the economy. So while I think that there is a lot to be confident about in terms of the direction of the economy as it relates to the, uh, the Fed's work over the last year, still I think it's important to maintain a long-term view, maintain views guided by diversification. Um, some of the market commentary sh shown here in terms of stylistically, that dispersion that we've seen between growth and value stocks that Callan touched on has been significant. And so for strategies that are geared more towards uh, factors, um, those have been uh, more punished than uh, if you had a, a growth overweight. From an interest rate standpoint, the 10-year Treasury yield ended around 3.8% as of the end of the second quarter, trading around 4.25 um, as of today. So we've seen actually fixed income coming into the third quarter challenged a little bit. But what we also have seen is interest rate hikes. Um, as of the end of June, markets were projecting another two rate hikes in 2023. So far, we've seen one. Based on what we've seen from most of the inflation prints that we've seen, including today's, markets are not predicting any more rate hikes as of now. Uh, and what they're projecting actually is the first rate decrease potentially coming as soon as June of next year. So there's about a 60% probability of a rate decrease coming in June. Uh, no more for uh, greater than 50% probabilities using futures markets as of today of, of any more further rate increases. So that's also been a benefit to equity markets. What does that mean for public plans such as FERS? Well, in this type of an environment, uh, strategies or, or portfolios that are geared more towards the public markets have benefited the best. Any uh, tilts toward alternative assets, private markets has been a headwind. Certainly, uh, we've seen that with your performance over the last quarter and year to date, but none of that really is a surprise. The expectation always was going to be that private markets were going to write down uh, in line with a lag valuation that we traditionally see. But when you couple it with the dramatic increase in public equity markets that we've seen year to date, that's a, almost a compounding effect to the degree of uh, what that means to your overperformance or outperform or underperformance. So I'll, um, I've got more commentary on the economy in the back of the deck in the appendix. Happy to touch on that later if there are questions, but I'll move forward just to talk a little bit about your portfolio now. So slide four is a review of the asset allocation compliance. Uh, so again, the guide here is to show you where your portfolio is positioned as of June 30th relative to your targets and then the rebalancing ranges around those targets. And there's a couple important points given this is the first iteration of our report. 
One is that you'll note footnotes there with some asterisks for the public equity with overlay, treasuries with overlay, and cash accounts. As you can see, the footnote there highlights a point that is important in that those amounts, uh, those ranges and, and, and current uh, levels do not factor in any leverage that you may have in the portfolio. That is something we're working with your custodian and bank to be able to add. The positive story on that is you don't have a lot of leverage at work right now anyway, so the numbers would not actually change all that much, but wanted to point that out to highlight that when we do measure your compliance relative to your asset allocation policy, we want to factor in leverage that's used, and the policy that we're, we're using is your long-term strategic asset allocation, which does factor in uh, uh, leverage. You can see that based off that cash row at the bottom, the range there is between negative 3% and uh, about 5% in terms of the range that you can have. So that shows you that there is leverage incorporated in what we're tracking against. Again, in future iterations, we, we look to be able to incorporate leverage within this report. In terms of where you are from a policy standpoint, um, you can see underweight public equity, uh, treasuries are also below target, and you can see outside the range, the range would be the, the gray segments there. So if you're outside of that gray segment, you're outside of that range. Should be noted that the treasuries, you know, earlier this year had a higher degree of exposure due to some leverage that you had in play. Uh, staff made the decision to take off that leverage because of the inverted yield curve that we have, which, you know, we would agree with. You know, you're borrowing at a, at a higher cost than you are yielding, so it would make sense to take that off. The result of removing some of that leverage has pushed you to uh, just outside of your, your, your current treasury range. And then private equity, uh, you know, not to belabor that point, you've had your private equity review, I believe, last, uh, last month. Um, that continues to be overweight relative to the policy due to a multitude of factors, including the denominator effect, what we've seen in the sell-off last year. But I would say that we've seen that come down in terms of that overweight. I think you were north of 30% um, at the last report that you guys received. Now you're just under 30% in terms of that allocation. So you're within your rebalancing range now, and we will probably continue to see that come down as public markets do well, and we see continued um, write-downs in private markets. Page five is just the table version of the same information. The, the one thing I'll point out here as well, in terms of that uh, third column, the asset allocation column, you can see your public equity with overlay is at around 32%. Your private equity allocation just under 30%. That sums to around 61, 62%. When you look at your target asset allocation for public and private equity, that's at 60%. So although you do have overweights in private equity, that is somewhat offset due to the underweight in public equity. So you are relatively close to your target in terms of overall growth assets, and I think that's an important point to highlight. Uh, moving to slide seven, so this is the overall performance table, um, which gives you a summary at the total fund and composite level. And so what you see, just focus maybe on that first row. For the, first, uh, for the second quarter, the portfolio's return was 2.4% policy index at 4.3%, so underperformance of just under 2%. As we extend out over the last year, you can see more pronounced underperformance. Again, the major driver of that is the private market. 
uh, underperformance due to the write downs that we've seen in private markets while public markets have rallied in 2023. This is just essentially um, a reversal of what we saw probably this time last year in your reports where private markets and alternative exposure were additive in value relative to the policy benchmark. So nothing to point out in terms of negative from this. It's more just a byproduct of the fact that when you have private market exposure, such as Spurs does, and public markets are volatile, you're going to see tracking error uh, as a result of that. And this is evidence of that. Another thing to point out on this report with the footnote, you'll see that we have some composites labeled as a with overlay and then some with overlay notional. Uh, the differentiation there is to factor in the effects of leverage. So maybe using public equity with overlay as an example, that is the actual market value of the physical assets that you've held. When you factor in the amount of leverage in the portfolio, in this case it's, it's a, around $200 million, that notional line item essentially assumes if you held all of those assets physically. So any differential in return that you see between the public equity with overlay versus the with overlay notional is a way to evaluate the use of leverage within that sleeve of the portfolio. And I will point out that the nomenclature here is a little bit um, confusing. One of the things that we are going to work with staff is maybe revisiting how we label these composites to make that a little bit more intuitive going forward. So what you don't have here and will come in a future version of the report is a total fund with overlay notional composite. That way you can evaluate the efficacy of leverage use at the total fund level in future mm -hmm. versions of the report. And I think that's an important thing to uh, be able to highlight going forward. It will be done in a future report yes, it separately? Will. Yes, it, it'll, it'll be in this report. It'll be its own separate composite. Yep. Thank you. Uh, one thing just in terms of your longer term performance, um, three, five, and 10 years, you can see all of those well in, a, uh, in excess of your 7.2% uh, uh, discount rate. Um, so that continues to uh, be a good thing to see. Obviously, the, the shorter term performance has been hindered by uh, the private market uh, performance as of uh, the last six months. Maybe flipping over to slide 10, uh, this is your overall total fund performance table. A lot of the same numbers here. The one thing I want to highlight on the left is we also included a, a benchmark that includes more of just a public market reference index, which is 60% the ACWI, 30% US AG, and then 10% uh, uh, private real estate. So this gives you a comparative way to also look at the impact of your alternative assets, particularly within private equity and private credit, just to give you a sense of, you know, ha have those been good decisions to take? overarching uh, uh, analysis of that is relative to that red line, your policy benchmark and your total fund are, are well clear of that uh, over the uh, one, three, five, and ten year, uh, the three, five, and ten year um, horizons. So this continues, I think, to support the inclusion of those alternative assets in the portfolio relative to a, a more public market uh, 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 reference index. And then lastly, on page 11, two ways to also evaluate, evaluate your performance um, using peer analysis. On the left is a rolling percentile ranking of Spurs portfolio relative to all public plans in the investment metrics universe of greater than $1 billion. And you'll see a, a fairly boring 
almost straight line there at the top, which is good news um, in that uh, your portfolio continues to rank as one of the top two or three uh, percent um, uh, best portfolios in terms of percentile ranking. And that has continued to be a trend. You do see noise in that ranking when we look at shorter term horizons. Um, if you're so interested in the back of the deck, there is peer analysis that gives you different time horizons. So we've included that as a supplementary item. But we, we tend to think that longer term is better. Uh, yes, question. Just a quick question, anecdotal. And if you don't know it offhand, that's just fine. I was just wondering, are there, in that back area, are there listed the specific firms up in that percentile with us as well? Or is that? Usually, uh, in terms of the, 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 the plans that are in the universe? Uh, well, specifically the ones that are in our area of the rankings as well. So you, you in terms of like public uh, cities, like breaking it down, Sure. Typically, um, some of that information is blinded. Uh, I don't know if Investment Metrics has those subcategories. Uh, I, I know, you know, Wilshire as a, as, a, as a provider of custodian universes, we've broken it down like that. But as a follow-up, uh, we could certainly look into what options Investment Metrics has in terms of uh, bifurcating that across more dimensions. I have two questions. One, the first one is along that line. The other dots or bullet points there, they are also Institutional investors like us, meaning a public pension fund? Correct. Okay. So these are all public pension plans that are in that universe. Do you, does Wilshire have the ability to put some bullets on there, maybe change the shape? But they are also institutional investors that, in a sense, either we invest with them or like them coincidentally, or it's not so much that they are better investors, but whether or not we would want to, again, improve our policy or our risk tolerance. So you have the ability to do that. Yes. So that, that brings up a, a really good point, which is not just looking at the return rankings, but taking at face value what peer analysis means. Um, you're comparing yourself blindly to other plans that have completely different funded ratios, that have completely different uh, portfolio lineups. So it's always important to take that into context when evaluating this. The good news is that you rank very highly, um, but you also have a completely different uh, uh, you know, perspective in terms of where you stand relative to some of these plans in this universe that have to maybe take more risk don't have the luxury of being able to take on diversification because their funded status does not support um, that type of an allocation. There are some significant differences amongst institutional investors, liquidity props being the, one of the biggest ones that would not limit us, but we decide to invest accordingly to our, make sure we don't violate any of our liquidity, that's one. Uh, two, then, go slightly different question. The, it's, the triangle there represents policy, our policy. Correct. The page before we also started putting in the 60-30, we went from 60-40 to 60-30-10. Whether or not we should put a 60-30-10 symbol on there, or I'm actually more concerned about putting there a representative to capture something that is more illiquid. Because the 60-30-10 is totally different for us in terms of liquidity, because we're 45-55. Something, I forget the exact numbers. Correct. Uh, so we do have flexibility to, to add information to, to this chart. So adding the 60-30-10 is not, not a problem. I and think then explaining the footnotes what that symbol represents yes, in terms of the happy, allocation. happy to do that. And, and one thing to note, you know, as part of that, you, know, you always want to be in that upper left quadrant, uh, oh, yeah. ideally. So that is good to see. The differential between the circle and triangle, again, is um, it, the impact of selection within the portfolio, uh, the way you've tilted it, not only at the asset allocation level, but also with the managers that you've selected. So everything uh, in the report um, 
that we've seen so far indicates positive, especially on the long term. Some of the short term underperformance is to be expected in this type of an environment. Um, we will be adding to Allison's point attribution uh, in future versions. And again, with a focus on not only looking at the attribution um, traditionally the way it's been done, but adding the ability to dissect the impacts of leverage uh, and how that's worked in the portfolio. So we look forward to a future meetings where we can discuss that uh, as part of our prepared remarks. I will stop there um, and see if there are any other questions. You're not finished the report yet, though, are you? No, that those oh. are my those are my comments for today. There is a lot more in the deck that I wasn't planning yeah. to cover okay. per se, but happy to address questions that you have. I'll wait till you get to the end there. Thank you. He is at the end. Oh, is he, he finished? Is. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay uh, then my request in the economic and market data, you have the uh, jobs and you have a average hourly rate. The number that I like to look at is the payroll number. Because again, all three of them show something different to capture how well we are doing in terms of do, are people actually getting the money to consume more? That's one. Two, mm -hmm. on the market data, the it goes to left tail risk, the PE number. I didn't see it in those other charts there because when the PE number gets out of high, then I ask the question, is it the earnings or the price? Sure. It's when the price goes, you know, I'm telling you what you do. I'd like to see that chart if you're able to add it to there. Happy to add that. Thank you. Well, as a first shot at the gate, I appreciate your presentation. Thank you very much. Any questions? Great. And you look forward to more. We're looking forward to comparable charts. <laughs> Happy to do that, <laughs> if I can. Anybody have any questions? Comments? No, it's highly similar to what they put in there when they did the bid. This is very highly similar, though there's one level of detail that I think is still a work in process that we shall get. Uh, thank you. Work in progress, very good, thank you. Good. And you found working with our staff? It's been excellent. It really has been. It's been a, a big learning experience, as you can imagine, uh, getting to know a, a brand new portfolio. Um, what I also find is it can be helpful for, for all parties involved to, to kind of revisit the reporting, revisit you know, the feeds that come in from the custodians. It, 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 it allows you the opportunity to maybe improve upon things that you, know, you, you hadn't maybe been focused on. So it's been, uh, I know for us, uh, a really good experience so far. Good, good. Have any comments? I, I, I agree. It is um, when, when you start anew, um, you can evolve. Uh, the, the platform, so it takes time, but I think we'll be in a great spot Good. over the coming year. Good. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Like me to call public comment? Yeah, we do. Any in-house public comment? Seeing none. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Do you want to call the next item, please? Item number 12, discussion item, annual review of the Securities Lending Program for the fiscal year ending June 30, 2023. If I may make one very brief comment, I want to give a special shout out to Aloe Martins, uh, who not only really stepped up for uh, the 
prior presentation, but has stepped up uh, with respect to, to this uh, securities lending presentation. Um, his day job is uh, fixed income, but he is always willing to uh, help out at the total fund level, work with me and work with others. So thank you uh, for that. Thank you, Alan. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Um, Allo and I are here to provide our review of SPURS Securities Lending uh, Program for the fiscal year ended June 2023. Uh, uh, as, as Allison noted, uh, Allo oversees our fixed income portfolio. Uh, Allo and I, together with Anna Langs and the risk management team, oversees SPURS Securities Lending Program. We're also joined remotely by Mike McGinnis of BNY Mellon Security Finance Team. Mike is the one who oversees our program at BNY Mellon. And at the end of the presentation, Mike will make a few comments about trends he's seeing in the, uh, 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 sorry, earnings trends within the securities lending, lending business as well. Talk, talk a little bit about initiatives within their uh, securities lending practice. I'm gonna spend the next three slides just given what I think is a spectrum of knowledge of the securities lending industry and our program for the board uh, by first noting what its purpose is. And the purpose here is simply to generate an incremental amount of income for the plan by lending out our securities. And these are principally the securities that we hold within our public markets portfolios, treasuries, fixed income security, or, or liquid credit securities and public equities. When we designed this program and a little bit of history, which I'll talk about in a moment, uh, Anna and I worked on the program, developing the program at the end of 2019. The board approved reestablishing a program in 2020. And at the time, we estimated that we would earn about $2.3 million a year. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, it's designed to be highly risk controlled. Spurs had a securities lending program all the way up through the GFC and had a bad outcome. And that was for a variety of reasons. We weren't alone there. But in, in particular, our cash collateral, uh, the, the risks embedded within our cash collateral weren't well understood. Um, we have developed a program, which we'll talk about, with a separately managed account with very, very conservative guidelines. We also designed this in a way that if one of our equity securities is lent, we can withdraw it from a counterparty and retain our proxy voting authorities, which is important for us as we become increasingly active in our stewardship that we, Allison mentioned earlier. And finally, Anna developed uh, a, an add-on, if you will, to the securities lending program. We have an ability to borrow against the, the cash collateral as a form of uh, credit uh, in, the, in the case of uh, a liquidity need. So those are the features of our program. The outcome, and Alo's gonna talk a little bit more in detail, and this is his reward for being such a good uh, citizen. He gets to present some of the stuff to you. Um, uh, uh, we earned about $3.1 million for the fiscal year ended June 30th. Uh, and net revenue, we'll get into this a little bit later, but the rising interest rates certainly help us and help our earnings uh, within the securities lending program. Uh, for those of you not familiar with securities lending, I'll talk briefly about what it is, but it's a, it's a common market practice where an asset owner, in this case Spurs, lends our securities, again, fixed income securities, public equity securities to a counterparty. There could be a, real, a variety of reasons why somebody might want to borrow our securities, but primarily they, they want to short something that could be for alpha purposes or, or more often than not, it's for hedging purposes. And in fact, you'll note or you'll see later on in our presentation that 
the types of securities that were in greatest demand for spur, from SPURS were our treasury positions. We earn a little bit of income from that practice. We earn a fee from whomever we're lending it to, and then we earn a little bit of a return on the cash collateral. So um, again, it's not without risk. Our sources, again, for what we earn is the borrowing fee and then our collateral and reinvestment. There's a variety of factors that can impact our success or, or the activity within our securities lending program, first of which is just market demand. And as, as was allowed last year, the third and fourth quarters of the calendar year were extraordinarily, volat extraordinarily volatile, and we saw some demand fall off a little bit. But as interest rates have uh, continued to rise, we've seen increased demand actually in our treasuries portfolio. So it's a, 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 a success here is dependent on market dynamics, also dependent on what we happen to hold within our public equities program, whether or not there's demand there. Uh, there's a term called specials, which is high demand uh, securities to short. We own a lot of specials, but mostly in our, our kind of opportunistic portfolios, which are held in commingled funds. A lot of what we have, we hold for lending purposes are really within our passive portfolios. So we have a somewhat conventional pool of, of assets to which to lend. And then again, interest rates and spreads affect what we can earn. Um, there are, this is not without risk. However, as I noted, you can um, lose if the collateral itself isn't invested well. You can also uh, lose if there's a, a counterparty failure. And I'll talk about some mitigants here. One form of risk is our, act, our managers don't care and they should not be affected by securities lending uh, practices. They're free to buy and sell their securities as they see fit, but there's always the risk that if we have a security out on loan, a manager sells it, there could be a settlement issue. I can tell you we haven't had any settlement issues, uh, but that could be a form of risk. And then finally, as I noted, there's a risk. There, there is the potential risk for borrower default. So, and as I noted in February of 2020, the board approved a, a revised or a new securities lending program. And I've noted some of the features here. Importantly, uh, this is, uh, we're, we're indemnified by Bank, Bank of New York Mellon. So I can't see that. Uh, in case of a counterparty default. So one of the primary concerns that we had in redeveloping a securities lending program was just that, is how do we mitigate the loss or the risk of a counterparty default? In this case, we're indemnified. I noted that in past SFER's um, old securities lending program, our cash collateral was managed in a commingled fund. We don't do that any longer. We have a separately managed account where we're the sole owner, and we've been able to put our own guidelines around that, which are quite conservative. In fact, they're commensurate with the uh, rules that govern money market funds. Those are the rules that we have adopted. And then, as I noted, we have the ability to recall securities in order to affect our own proxy voting um, uh, efforts. So I'm going to pause there, and just before I have Allo talk about the fiscal year, are there any questions about securities lending generally or, or specifically with our program? Commissioner Driscoll. If by chance, maybe low probability, but if Joe then, If we did then lend a security that's in one of our manager's portfolio, we don't tell them we're doing that, but if by chance that port they sell a portfolio that we have lent against, is that a crisis or is that a problem that just takes up a day or two to reverse or solve? So, so what you describe is common practice. We, 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 they know that we lend their securities and our pledge to them is it does not impact their buying or selling. So the circumstance you're describing, which again hasn't happened where they sell a security that's out on loan and they need to settle it in one day, 
if whomever borrowed it is slow to return it back to us, ultimately that is a settlement issue that I would say, and Mike McGinnis, you can comment about how often that happens and the periods to cure, but the, it is ultimately a settlement problem. If there's a delay, if that counterparty can't get that security back to us, then it's a matter of, of you know, somewhat of, of a litigation it becomes a legal matter. But in that case, BNY is identifying yeah. us. It's sort of a routine problem to be expected and there's solutions for it. Okay, thank you. Yeah, and I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't characterize it as routine. I think it actually runs pretty smoothly. But Mike, you can, you can comment about your experience with our program or, or more broadly. Yeah, I would just say that it's a straight through process. As soon as your managers sell one of the securities that is on loan, we're immediately notified in our lending systems the, whether or not we need to act and what action we need to take. And I would say too that uh, on settlement date, whether or not a security has come back from loan, uh, you, your manager would get contractual settlement of the proceeds, meaning they're getting the, the money that day. So they're not uh, at all disadvantaged and they cannot invest as they otherwise would. But as the largest lending agent on the street with the largest pool of assets to lend, we very often are able to just substitute out your securities with another lender who holds the same thing as soon as we're notified and the security's ready for settlement. Thank you. And if I may uh, add on to that, so uh, is it Mike on the other Thank you. Who? Mike, sorry. Mike, yeah. yes. Mike, so this is Leona Bridges. So in, in the case, and I agree, you, are, you have the largest pool of assets. Have you, have, have you experienced any buy-ins with counterparties as a result of just that higher risk of not getting securities back? I think buy-ins, I mean, they would certainly take different flavors. Uh, we say, for instance, a lender held a bond, one of our beneficial owners like yourselves held a bond, mm -hmm. and uh, it failed today, the borrower failed to deliver the bond back to us, and it failed tomorrow. We could assess that and decide whether or not we want to try to buy in a security, mm -hmm. meaning we go out in the market and try to buy it. Now, if the borrower is having trouble finding it and, and getting a settlement of that to buy it and ship back to us, we may not have any more or luck and just by do, doing that might actually prolong the fail by adding another one out, out there in the market. So we have, we have a variety of tools at our disposal that we would use to mitigate that. I can say for certain in the four years that I've been working with Spurs going back to late 2019 and then the inception of the program, I cannot recall a single instance where we've had anything like that happen in your portfolio. I can't even think of a, any sort of a fail that we've had that's lasted more than a day or so. So that's how I would characterize it. Great, thank you so much. Great, well thank you for the questions. Uh, if no, nothing further, then uh, I'll turn it over to Alan to talk a little bit about the fiscal year. Good afternoon, board members. <clears throat> Moving on to uh, an update for the uh, fiscal year 2023. The headline number, as Kurt mentioned, in terms of net revenue generated by the securities lending program in this year was, the, was approximately $3.1 million. On average, $5.5 billion of available, lendos, of available lendable securities were available, and we had a utilization rate of 23%. Uh, on that 23% of lendable securities which were utilized, the program generated ap approximately 26 basis points on a net basis. 
and uh, on the overall lendable securities available of 5.5 billion, the SEC lending program generated a, a net return of approximately six basis points. As Kurt mentioned, another feature of the SEC lending program is the cash release facility, uh, which, which acts as a potential source of liquidity for this first plan. SFERS utilized this facility for liquidity needs at the end of 2022 and the beginning of 2023. There were uh, cash needs at the end of December, and we had pre-planned cash inflows at the beginning of January, and we used the, credit f the cash release facility as a bridge to cover those uh, cash needs. It was approximately $30 million of liquidity at a cost of about 32,000, representing 10 basis points. Moving on to page eight, we can see the trend of annual earnings. And uh, since we started this program, the earnings have been in a range between 2.6 and 3.1 million, in line, but on the higher end of the expected and underwritten ranges. The 3.1 million that we earned for fiscal year 2023 represents a 15% increase relative to the prior fiscal year. As Kurt mentioned, there are a number of factors that can drive the amount that's earned in, in any given year. One of those is utilization rates, which represent the ratio of securities on loan relative to the overall available securities for lending. And the second factor that's, that impacts earnings is also spread levels how much you earn on securities that are lent out, which is a combination of the lending spread as well as the reinvestment spread. Looking at the utilization rates on page 10, we see that our uh, overall utilization rate for the last fiscal year of 23%, while higher than the expected utilization of 20%, was lower than the prior year of 27%. The real story in terms of the increase in earnings for the last fiscal year were the increase in in, in reinvestment levels. And uh, as we've heard in the news, a big theme for this year has been the increase in base rates, which we've seen from the Federal, from the Federal Reserve. So overall spread levels uh, increased by about 100%. This was driven by a 160% increase in the investment spread. I'll skip over pages 12 and 13. They go into more granular detail and on a monthly basis of some of the figures that I've already walked through. Uh, on page 14, um, I wanted to stress that our securities lending program is a mature and very diverse program with over 2,000 securities on loan. We have about 1.2 billion of uh, securities on loan, and this is uh, backed up with about 1.3 billion of collateral. Uh, we're about 7% uh, over-collateralized on an aggregate basis, and we do have the ability to take in cash collateral and non-cash collateral as well, with non-cash collateral requiring a higher collateral percentage. Uh, I did mention that uh, on page 15, our reinvestment yield has increased. Just looking at our reinvestment portfolio, a couple of things that I want to call out. Firstly, this is a short-term portfolio, roughly three and a half months of um, maturity. It's a high quality portfolio. And uh, as of June 30th, roughly earning about five and a half percent, which is a significant increase from where uh, yield levels were 12 months ago. And, and we can actually see this graphically depicted on page 16. This is the increase in reinvestment spreads. And with that, uh, I'll uh, pass it over to uh, Mike McInnes over at BNY Mellon to talk about trends in earnings. Thanks, Al, and thank you all for the time today. I appreciate it. Uh, 
Certainly, as he just described, the credit spread environment over the past several years has really been uh, a, a revenue story. With credit spreads widening, we're able to increase the amount of money we, we can make for you based on your investment guidelines. Uh, the portfolio dynamics have changed a little bit, and certainly even since the fiscal year ended, uh, have changed a bit more, and that allows us to, to drive revenue for you as well. Um, one of the things that historically, in the past 15 or so years, borrowers to prefer to pledge securities as collateral. They're already sitting with them long, rather than tying up cash that they could otherwise invest in something, they prefer to use securities. Well, with the credit spreads widening, they uh, have been more interested in using the cash, and as a result, we've seen more demand to put that to work, which has been a good story with the spreads widening. We're able to drive more revenue to you as well. And then with some of the political uh, outcomes this year, uh, in the past few months, when talking about the debt ceiling and government shutdowns, and I can't believe we're looking at another one of those at the end of the month, but uh, that's driven some of the rates on some of those short-dated uh, government bonds higher. So again, these are that's something that you hold in size, and um, as a result, that's another positive revenue story for you as well. Within our program, we're, as I said before, the largest lending agent on the street. Securities lending is a core business at BNY Mellon, and we invest very heavily in it. Uh, so there's been a number of really cool things to talk about this year. The first would be the appointment of my new boss, Nihal Udeshi, who comes to us from Goldman Sachs, where she held a variety of roles in this industry. Uh, very well regarded. A number of the traders and the portfolio managers here that I work with have known her for a number of years and were really excited when she was the, named as the, the head of the program after the prior head, Bill Kelly, had retired. Uh, we recently deployed uh, a new cash collateral reinvestment system. So while we were happy with the functionality of the Charles River system, which we've been using for well over a decade, uh, it was starting to show its age in some ways, and really with some of the new tools that we were able to bring in from the Aladdin product, we feel like we still have the great compliance at point of entry and post-trade compliance, as well as uh, some other features that are kind of unique to our business and unique to our cash flows that just help uh, us do a better job managing your portfolio. Uh, we opened a six trading desk this year in Singapore to A, better serve our clients in the region, and B, as that region is becoming more uh, important to the overall securities lending landscape, it made more sense for us to have another uh, Asia-Pacific trading desk open uh, during those market hours to be able to transact. And certainly, DTC plus one, the movement of the US settlement cycle from a two-day cycle to a one-day has a lot of impacts to lending. It has impacts to the recalls that we make and things like that. So we've been doing a lot of investments in terms of the computer connectivity, in terms of the way that we take in trade files, the way that managers, uh, your managers, would be able to directly, you know, not so much directly send things to us, but utilizing that straight through process that I mentioned earlier, really just trying to create some of the best-in-class technology that we can to make sure that when that switch comes over, it's transparent to you just as it is today.
Um, those would be the main things that I would highlight as some of the goings-ons here in the program, and certainly if there are any more questions, I'm more than happy to take them. Thank you, Mike. So in, in sum, uh, the amount of securities that we have available for lending is about what we expected uh, three years ago. Utilization rates are about the same, and revenue is higher, albeit because of just much significantly higher interest rates. Any questions? or? Two questions. I just, first one is clarification. This securities lending and the impact, and when cash, particularly when the cash is borrowed, there's no connection to how the overlay program is run? Correct. Okay, good. Now, so then on page 7, I just want to understand the $32,000 in interest paid to borrow the $30 million for that six days. Okay, fine. And the cash management is constant, and I guess you all had other choices or options about if you needed the cash. But this one was chosen, so I'm just trying to go to the benefit side. The benefit of borrowing and spending the 32, not borrowing, the, paying $32,000 of interest. The benefit of doing, did it work out? Fair question, a good question. And if you think about it, at this time, it's mid-year. Uh, we have, we're raising capital from some managers, but we're not gonna get that capital until a couple days into July, or January, rather. So we have a choice do we sell liquid securities in order to meet those needs or do we borrow? And if you recall, at the end of December and into January, markets were rallying. That was when China had opened up, albeit that was a short-term rally. <laughs> U.S. equity markets were rallying. And so our view was rather than sell equities to raise an extra $30 million, <laughs> why don't we take the incremental cost to borrow over six days? Now, that could have turned against us had the markets fallen. But in this first six days, six trading days of January, the S&P 500 as a proxy was up about two and a half percent. So you could argue that by not selling equities and keeping 30 million in the market, we earned two and a half million on that, or sorry, 2.5 percent on that 30 million, versus the cost here of 32,000. So we wouldn't have known that, but that was our thinking: is um, okay. understanding what the markets were doing and making a choice between a known cost and a potential opportunity. Okay, good. I mean, you are looking at all those factors. What is the best option today to do it? Because you're not timing the market. A lot of tax harvesting going on, particularly that period of the year. So just understand that, that we've opened up the tools for you guys to do that. Thank you. And I would just add to that, too, that the interest in doing that among specifically your peers, other public funds, has really grown since the spring of 2020 when the pandemic uh, began and market values were falling. Uh, capital calls were happening. A number of the clients that I work with were selling assets that they otherwise would have preferred to hold on to. So being able to kind of create these sort of solutions for them is something we've been able to do and we've shared with a number of, like I said, your peers who are doing the same sorts of things now. Thank you. Anna? Go ahead. Yeah, I would also like to say so, sorry to interrupt you, Anna. I think that mic might be off. Or hold it real close. It's, it's a prop. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chair. Um, thanks, Kurt and Allo, uh, for uh, a great report. And I think the Securities Lending Program is doing great. Uh, 
I think the work that Anna and the team and everyone put into it in the beginning, it was a lot, it was a heavy lift, but uh, the results were worth it. I mean, it's, it looks great. And I think uh, BNY Mellon is doing a great job. I have a, uh, just a couple questions from Mike. Um, Mike, I know there've been a lot of banking regulations around securities lending and with all the new capital regulations, what has that impacted your ability to move securities in and out uh, for a specific, the, your specific program? That's a great question. And, and certainly in some ways it's, it's created, uh, I don't wanna say roadblocks to us, but it's required uh, different ways of thinking. In other ways, it's created opportunities. So for instance, one of the, the regulations that's kind of created an opportunity is some of the, the leveraging ratios uh, that different types of organizations have to meet. Uh, supplemental leverage ratio would be one of them. And uh, as a result, these sorts of financial institutions have to hold uh, mm -hmm. a certain amount of their assets in high, have to be considered high quality and liquid. Mm -hmm. What are high quality and liquid? The government securities that you hold in abundance. Mm -hmm. So they're willing to pay to borrow those to meet those sorts of metrics. So that's one way that we've seen regulations uh, help us. Some of, one of the other ones would be something like a single counterparty credit limit. There are only so many uh, organizations on the street that have the capital to run this kind of business and to do it well and to be able to offer the level of indemnification and act and really accept a lot of the risk in the that we do for you so uh, there aren't a whole bunch of players trading with one another so something like a single counterparty credit limit where each firm can only do so much business with another it is sort of a difficulty now one of the things that we've been able to do, and Spurs uh, was one of the first uh, to kind of uh, jump on this and saw the value of it, was uh, some of the different non-traditional counterparties we can lend to, such as the Fixed Income Clearing Corporation. That's a AAA rated counterparty, certainly uh, amongst the highest rated of all the highly rated ones, which is the only type of counterparty we lend to. And uh, that, that allows us to get another outlet make a, and, and come up with another way to put your securities to work for you. So um, those would be a couple things I could think of off the top of my head. Uh, SEC Rule 10C3 will be coming up soon, so that's a reporting requirement, basically uh, looking to bring more transparency into what we do. We're already complying with a very similar sort of regulations out of the EU called SFTR. We're doing a lot of reporting on your behalf today. We expect that when the SEC rule is finalized, there'll be more or less the same sort of thing. So um, those would be a couple of the main ones that I would, would definitely want to underscore. But yeah, that's a great question. Well, thank you, because that was the last question I was going to ask about was Reg 10C1, because I'm worried about, I was worried about the transparency rule coming out on every transaction, how that would impact the, your reporting on a global basis. So. I'm looking forward to seeing the ruling from the SEC as well. So if you keep uh, our team abreast of that, I will be attending meetings on that. So I'll be very curious to see the results. Thank you so much. Yeah, it, like I said, it, it's definitely something that we're already doing sort of the EU's version of it. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the original rules set forth, um, some of it just seemed like a little bit overkill, which is my opinion. But um, so what, whatever ends up in the final rule, will be ready and, and able to support as soon as we have to do it. So uh, no concerns there. Thank you. Okay, any other questions?
Thank you. Thank you, Elmo. Thank you, everybody. Thanks to your team. <laughs> Appreciate the time. Thank you. Madam Secretary, public Good comment. comment. Do we have any in-person public comment on this item? Seeing none, a reminder to any callers to press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Do you want to call the item 13, please? Thank you. Item number 13, discussion item, Chief Investment Officer's Report. Commissioners, we've now had two very good presentations from Callan and Wilshire on the, the market trends and performance. So I will skip over that, that topic uh, for the C, CIO report. Um, I will highlight two items, one on closed deals and the second on our processes around evaluating risk and in particular ESG risk. So to start with, and it's not in your materials because it happened in between the distribution of materials and uh, this meeting, I'm pleased to announce that under the newly delegated authority, we have a deal that is closed and consistent with a process that we laid out. We are uh, announcing that here in the board meeting. So under the delegated authority, SFERS has invested $50 million in Insight Partners 13 LP and $25 million in Insight Partners uh, 13 Growth Buyout Fund. The investment closed on September 8, 2023. The funds will be classified as growth equity within the SFERS private equity portfolio. Um, now moving to um, our approach to, to diligence and, and in particular ESG issues. I want to provide the board some background uh, with respect to our approach in these areas, uh, and in particular, how we monitor these issues on an ongoing basis. As you know, and we've discussed uh, over this past year, uh, as we've talked about our process as we um, look to hire managers, we have a very robust process um, that, that spans uh, multiple areas of, of, of risk. So we look at traditional finan financial risk, we look at ESG risks, which in many cases are financial uh, risks. Um, and, and when we look at ESG risk, we're focusing on those that can have a material impact on the potential returns of a fund. And we also look at operational and organization risk. Um, we're always looking at these risks relative to the, the, um, the materiality with respect to the investment decision. Once we decide to invest, um, there are a couple things that are important to note. Um, for private market investments, we are typically a limited partner. So this means we do not make individual portfolio holding decisions, nor do we have any involvement in the operations of the companies that sit within that portfolio. That said, we do continuously monitor our fund investments. And from time to time, an ESJ issue um, with respect to the manager or to a portfolio company within the fund um, may come to our attention. We have an established procedure to evaluate the issue, to determine the materiality of the risk, and to get, engage as necessary with the manager. <coughs> so elements of the procedure generally includes asset class staff uh, working with our director of ESG to evaluate the financial, operational, legal, and reputational risk associated um, with that issue that could potentially impair value. And based on that assessment, we document our, our viewpoint and identify if there are next steps. Next steps could include, depending on the situation, further diligence, uh, engagement with the manager for additional information, 
engagement with the manager to express Fur's views on the issue. Um, we may take that into account, the issue that we're evaluating with respect to any future investments that we may make with that manager. And we may, uh, as appropriate and subject to the rich, take the opportunity to inform the board of the, the issue. So again, I wanted to highlight all this to um, get the board comfortable with the fact that we do have a very robust process in place that is ongoing and documented within the organization. Any action that we take based on our analysis is dependent upon the materiality of the issue for the risk and return of that investment itself and the potential risk return that that could have on the enti entirety of the fund. Um, so um, I, I hope that provides some helpful guidance. Things do pop up from time to time. We do hear from stakeholders and other constituents about these risks. We take risks seriously and we evaluate those in the context of our fiduciary duty. Um, with that, I'll turn it over to the board for questions. Question on this subject. <clears throat> is it fair then to assume? Sure. Oh, thank you. <clears throat> is, it, is it fair to assume then that you or Andrew or anybody on the investment team particularly uses the initiative if we think there's an, something in one of our holdings, meaning portfolio, LP arrangements with the GP, that then initiatives taken by us to contact the responsible group, meaning the general partner, or do we only simply wait until a complaint comes in? We, we, we listen, uh, so we're, we're monitoring news. We listen to stakeholders who may share information. We are actively engaging with the manager on a regular basis to understand what's going on in the portfolio, so we take all those into account. Okay, so my point is in, there's initiative. We're not just waiting. That's one. Absolutely. Two, then, I know we get an annual report on our proxy voting positions we take and how the results, et cetera. I'm just wondering whether or not also at least if it's significant, I'm sure you would make an, a report at the next meeting, but whether or not, particularly from Andrew, who's doing a lot of work with the investment teams, to report when action was taken by him and or you to contact a general partner. This is what we did. It may or may not have any results, but in fact, we did try to do something. I think I'll discuss that with the team. There are some confidentiality issues with respect to um, private investments that we would have to consider and, and how we would convey that to the board. Yeah. Uh, the reason I say that, it's not about just trying to prove to other people what we do, but I am familiar with a woman, I think she spoke here, but Ms. Simpson from CalPERS, who I think is left and taught more than just good governance back at NYU. They Because they were very big believers in being engaged and not divesting. So it's sort of in the same area, um, in my way of thinking. Um, what are we doing to report so the board is then aware of all the efforts that you and Andrew and te your team are making? That's what the first step of the report would be. Thank you. Th th thank you for that question. And I think the, the prime word there is engage, and we do engage uh, with our managers. Um, and and uh, to the extent it's a, you know, uh, a publicly traded equity, there's opportunities to engage there as well. Thank you. Um, thank you. Uh, CIO Romano for that summary of, of how we are engaging when we become aware of uh, these sorts of issues. I think it might be useful for the board, maybe more in an educational capacity going forward, perhaps like I'm thinking possibly the investment committee in the future where we can have a, uh, some educa further education on sort of the process that we have when we're made aware and, and how we engage more broadly with from if there is an established process for engaging with, you know, rather than kind of getting into the specific 
each individual time this has happened. I'd rather kind of talk about what our policy is and how, how we engage. Um, and especially if there are different sort of classifications of investments, maybe we need to engage in a different way. But I think that's a good education topic for the board. Thank you. Any other questions, comments? If not, thank you. How is it? I'm going to call you Matt. Matt uh, what do I call you? Ms. Romano. That, that's perfectly AF, fine. I'm, we, we started AFL-CIO. It's CIO-CEO. <laughs> okay. Anything's uh, fine. <laughs> public comment. Do we have any in-person public comment? Seeing none. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. I'm going to call item number 14, please. Thank you. Item number 14, discussion item. Retirement board member, good of the order. Comments? The good of the order, as far as I'm concerned, is this was a very, very efficient meeting and um, is demonstrative. I'm sure the investments are good, but it's demonstrative of the delegation issue and the efficiency on board, how the board functions. So um, I, I, I was talking, I, I would say we've gained about an hour, and that's not the goal, just to gain, gain time, but um, it's efficiency. Okay, any comments? Board public? members, excuse me, before yeah. you, you go to public comment, could we ask you to leave behind your confidential folder here of hearing decisions? We're gonna do that going forward. Okay. I threw mine away. It's okay. Okay. <laughs> Should you give us a reason why that's a good thing to do? Sure. I'm. What we're going to ensure that they are disposed of properly. Yeah. Um, because these obviously contain confidential um, employee materials relating to their health, and so this way, if you can leave them behind, we will shred them for you, and then you'll know that they've been disposed of properly. Good. Turning men is a good way to dispose of them. Thank you. Okay. Um, public comment. Thank you. Uh, we have no in-person public comment. Moderator, are there any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. A motion to adjourn. Oh, we don't need a motion to adjourn. Adjournment. <laughs>